Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to have with me two of my brilliant attorneys, Dana Delot, who's a senior attorney at the firm, and Brian Green, who's a supervising attorney. Today's topic deals primarily with mergers and acquisitions, sell-offs, and co-employer arrangements. It basically will discuss the relationship of corporate changes, which we know as mergers and acquisitions, with respect to immigration law. Many of you often send us questions about the impact of a potential merger or acquisition or some other related spin-off type of deal. But all too often, these kinds of questions come towards the end of the transaction. We urge you as employers who are participating in today's conference call to consider the immigration issues right from the outset so that you can truly plan and strategize in a proactive manner instead of in a reactive manner. So Dana, why is it important for an employer to consider the immigration issues when planning any kind of a merger or acquisition? It's important to consider these things in the planning stage because during corporate transformations, including mergers, acquisitions, asset purchases, and spinoffs, the immigration laws can have a differing impact depending upon how a business changes and the choices made by the employer. In all cases, there will be some impact and there'll be some steps that the employer needs to take in order to comply with immigration requirements. Specifically, we urge employers to engage in due diligence in investigating a company during an acquisition and examining their history and record in order to determine immigration compliance. And also as part of this process, it's vital to assess the impact of corporate changes on the employment eligibility of any foreign national employees and to evaluate the impact of these changes on any existing company-sponsored immigration filings. And as you said, Sheila, all of this needs to be examined and planned proactively to allow for smooth workforce transition and to minimize the related costs and other potential liabilities. Okay. So clearly we realize that immigration law generally connects a specific employer to a foreign national worker, but in most corporate changes such as mergers, acquisitions, asset purchases, and spinoffs, as Dana just mentioned, it will end up having an impact even when there's a change of an employer where potentially the H-1 or the green card process could very well continue. And so depending on the type of transaction, the exact steps that need to be taken should be considered. So Brian, let's go through some basic options. What are the basic options with respect to a company in such a situation? From the immigration perspective, there's really two main options for a company during the corporate change if the company is a successor in interest, there are certain benefits that come with that, but the company also could emerge from the transition as a new employer. And it's a very important distinction to uh, be appreciated by the employers is whether or not they can benefit from being a successor or whether they're going to be a new employer. And new employers have the obligation to hire any of the transferred workers from the um, whatever company was merged or acquired. A successor has the benefit of absorbing those employees and not going through the hiring process. But there are some dangers that go along with that as well. 
And I know a lot of companies actually in mergers and acquisitions, even if they're deemed to be a successor in interest, often will recommend in the employment law context, hey, it might be worth doing fresh I-9s, et cetera, et cetera, so that if there were mistakes with the prior employer or the prior HR, you don't inherit all of those problems. I guess we're going to speak more about that. Um, So I guess the question really that many of you may be wondering in today's conference call is, hey, why on earth can't I just opt to be a successor in interest rather than going through and starting the entire process from scratch? Well, possibly because you may not have planned the transaction in a way that could qualify you as a successor in interest or because as the acquiring entity, you as the employer may decide that it is way too risky for you to take the risks and continue the operations from before. A major component of being a successor in interest is in assuming the liabilities. It's, so it's a, 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 you know absorbing the rights, obligations, and liabilities, including all immigration-related liabilities of the acquired company. So this would imply and require assuming the risks for an investigation, fines, penalties for non-compliance by the entity that is being purchased. Successor companies risk penalties for violations that obviously they believe they did not directly commit, but then because they're agreeing to absorb the liabilities, they end up being responsible for it. Um, It's important to carefully, uh, I think at this point, Brian, maybe we want you to talk a little bit about what are the liabilities that the employer can assess in such situations. Sure, Sheila. It's important for the purchasing company to understand what the liabilities they're assuming are. And in that context, doing an audit ahead of time while the deal is being negotiated can help the acquiring company understand what the risk that they're taking on. It could be back wages from a Department of Labor investigation. It could be I-9s that were improperly completed for a number of years. Whatever that immigration um, problem is, is going to transfer over if the company wants to be a successor. And without doing an audit before the transaction has occurred, you really don't understand the, the totality or the value of the company, or the value of the risk that you're taking on. So we recommend as a best practice that each employer look at the purchase company, the company that they're going to uh, you know, take on, and see what is the, the, the risk and the benefit that they're going to be weighing there. So at Murthy Law Firm, we often do audits of companies and help them assess what risk is, is being transferred, what can be addressed before the actual merger or the spinoff, and what can't be solved. And that should lead the owners of the company to decide on their their plan of action at that point. Yeah, in fact, Brian uh, Green and a team from the Murthy Law Firm regularly go into companies and help with filing, reviewing the documents, reviewing I-9s, reviewing so that there really is a detailed in-depth review and an audit that is done, which can then substantially increase the value of the company in the long run by making sure your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed with respect to investigating and researching the earlier entity and seeing how well you can absorb all of that. So, Brian, what's go ahead, Nadina. We even do that for, for companies um, you know, to, who do proactively. They will have, through their own internal audits, just to make sure that their own houses are clean. But in the merger context, you're, you know, if, you're consider, if you're a company and you're trying to be acquired, you're much more valuable if you have a, you know, a clean house and a clean record and you're not asking some other employer to take on 
you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even, you know, potentially more in liabilities. It keeps it keeps your, your company, uh, keeps your value up. Thank you, Dana. So, Brian, what exactly is a successor in interest? How can I, if I want to buy a company, ensure that the both entities can survive in some way and which entity is going to be the successor and how does that all play out? The successor company would be the company that emerges from the corporate change and has the rights, obligations, and the duties of the prior company. So it's important that the successor company be able to document the transfer of rights, obligations, and ownership of the prior entity, but it's not required that 100% of these are all transferred. There has to be a transfer of the assets as well as the essential rights and obligations of the predecessor necessary to carry on the business in the same manner. So there has to be a transfer of both assets and some liabilities or you do not have a successor in the immigration context. And it's such a broad definition in a funny way because it's not really, really, I mean, there are memos, there's, but there's very little actual statute in terms of an actual law that completely covers and sort of embraces the entire concept from my understanding. Um, and, and, and it's possible technically maybe for one entity to have two or three successors in different avenues, uh, depending on how much of the life rights and obligations. We've seen deals where it's happened, where different entities have continued the green card. So before you throw in the b- b- blanket and say, you know what, this is not going to work because this other company has already said I'm the successor, so we can't be the successor. I had that conversation consultation at one point, and I remember thinking, that doesn't make sense. Because they sell off divisions sometimes. You're exactly. You're selling 100% of the company. You're selling off different parts and divisions. But and people think they can only be one successor, and that is so not the case. So well, sometimes companies get transferred multiple times. I know we've had those too, where especially with prior dates backlogged and what have you, that companies will, the same company will change hands. It'll be company A and then it'll be like you said, divisions so that you could have five divisions and each division could then be a successor in interest to the prior entity so that the H1 and green card could potentially continue. So Dana, where does co-employment come into play and how does that play into the entire mergers and acquisition scenario? Co-employment is really an employment law concept, but co-employment considerations come into play when one company is taking over as a successor in interest and taking over another company's liability, because a lot of times you're not even aware of this potential liability, because co-employment involves situations where more than one company has legal rights and duties with respect to a particular employee. And this is primarily uh, temporary or contract workers, and Companies sometimes inadvertently create these co-employer relationships just by exercising control over people who might be there as temps or as contract workers, and then they take on these related employment liabilities that then could transfer to a successor in interest. So that's one thing to consider when a company is looking to acquire another. They can't just look necessarily at the actual employees and the I-9s and that compliance. They may have to look at whether there were some outside independent contractors or uh, like H1 consultants and, and all of that type of worker where liability could have inadvertently been created. Okie dokie. Um, thank you, Dana. And Brian, so does the new employer have to complete new I-9 forms? And I know we sort of alluded to this a little bit before. Yes, they do. If a company after a corporate restructuring is a new employer, it absolutely has to do new I-9s for any of the employees that it's assuming from the prior company. So one of the benefits of this is that if a new I-9 is completed, 
whatever problems may have existed in the prior I-9 are not transferred to that, that new employer, that new company. But yes, new I-9s have to be completed, and all of the requirements of the I-9 process have to be honored, even though this person may have been employed by that prior company for 10 or 20 years, it doesn't matter, it's a new hire, the person has to be hired, they have to complete the I-9 process within three days. But if it's a new employment context, context, but you're saying even if it's a successor in interest, it makes a difference? Because my understanding was most employers do it because it gives you greater protection and it's cleaner and it's nicer and then you don't inherit all the problems from the old I-9. But you could potentially actually simply choose to inherit and not file new I-9s. So it sounds like a contradiction. No, it's, it's choice. It's the employer has the choice. If they are a successor, they need to look at the I-9s and, and decide were these done properly or are there liabilities. If there's no liabilities, they can assume the I-9s, put them with their current I-9s, make sure that the systems and the, and the documents kind of work together and don't have uh, disparities between how they were maintained. But no, absolutely, the employer can just take those. In a successor context, but not if it's a new employer context. And in a new employer context, or in a successor, if they want to, they can choose to just do new I-9s, and that does Right, which is what is generally much safer method to process. Usually it is. Way to look at it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Brian. Dana, do new H-1B petitions have to have a fresh new H-1 after there's a merger or acquisition? Um, this That too depends on whether we have a successor interest or whether we have new employment. I did want to say one thing quickly about the I-9s because people often think they only have to do I-9s for their foreign national workers. When you, If you are a new employer or you choose to do I-9s, that's all the workers, not just the foreign nationals. Um, but moving back to the H-1s, if we have a successor in interest, then the employer doesn't have to redo the H-1s. The new entity has to make sure they have good records. They've got to have a list of all the transferred H-1 employees, and they must assume all the LCA, the labor condition application liabilities for each one of those H-1 petitions and continue to maintain the H-1 public access files. There are some steps, some hoops that, that the employer has to jump through here in addition to structuring everything so they qualify as a successor in interest. They have to document the public access file for each acquired H-1 employee with an LCA acquisition memo. And they must complete this and have it placed in the public access file in order to employ that worker. And you know, so before that person shows up for work and gets started, this has to be done. There are some very specific requirements for this. Um, it, it isn't necessarily so hard. You just have to know to do it. And two of the more important requirements are that it has to have a copy of a sworn affidavit from the proper company official uh, expressly acknowledging that the company has assumed all of the, li- uh, all the liabilities and obligations arising from the LCA, the labor condition application. And then there are also, again, a, a number of specific things that have to be mentioned in there, including the explicit agreement to abide by the Department of Labor obligations. Okay, so basically, if the employer is unable or doesn't understand or thinks there's a risk, it is necessary for the employer to then treat these people as new employees and file new LCAs and new H-1B petitions because this kind of a statement that you just mentioned, Dana, sounds like it has to be completed and placed in the public access file in order to employ or continue employing the H-1 workers under the successor concept. Success. Right. So when, when sometimes companies will call us up after everything and they've already got people sitting there at their desks busily, you know, attending to business. And 
it's too late to go ahead and do this. This all has to be thought out ahead of time and, and done. Okie dokie. Brian, is there ever a time when a new H-1B petition is required? Clearly required, not in a case where because they didn't file it, as we just said. Uh, where What are the circumstances when the employer has to file a new petition? Yes, there are. If the company is not a successor, if it's a new employer, there has to be a new H-1B petition filed. And that petition has to be filed before that worker starts working, as Dana just said. So if it's not a successor, you have to do a new H-1B petition. And that's one of the benefits about being a successor and, like you said, also one of those risks. Okay. What about L1s? How, did, how, did, how can the employer continue that process? Right. And L1s are intercompany transferees. And the eligibility for that status depends upon the existence of certain corporate relationships between a U.S. entity and a foreign entity. So if there are corporate changes either in the U.S. or abroad that terminate that uh, corporate connection between the two companies, they have to be, there's a required parent, branch, affiliate, or subsidiary relationship between the U.S. sponsoring company and the foreign company. If that ends, then we can't have L1s anymore and just eligibility for the L1 goes away. have to do something else. Alternatively, if the transaction doesn't terminate that connection between the U.S. company and the foreign entity, then L1 status can potentially continue. Um, if the workers are on individual L1s rather than blankets, then if there's a change in the U.S. employing entity, we'll have to file an amendment to the L1 petition. And otherwise, if the employees are on blanket Ls and the relationship between the U.S. and the foreign company uh, continues to exist and the company qualifies, there are certain requirements to qualify for a blanket, uh, if all of that is in place, then it is possible to add a newly acquired company to the covered list of companies on the blanket and continue smoothly with the employment. So that would be like an amendment of the blanket petition? Some yes, such, yes, some right. such really, so that the, the individual wouldn't have to go back and change anything. It would just be in the underlying L blanket right, document. Right. But even for the H-1B under the Visa Waiver Permanent Act, which is what initially started it, my understanding was that the an amended petition under the statute is actually needed for any successor if there is any change whatsoever, not just material changes in the job duties or the terms of employment of the individual, because the statute is somewhat clear that it didn't it doesn't even say substantial changes. It has to be identical because we had had, I remember, a huge discussion about this in, with a group of uh, attorneys, very experienced attorneys that basically talked to try to talk to then Efren Hernandez, who was with USC, who was then with Legacy INS, where he agreed that the statute was improper and incorrect and confusing because it said that all the terms and conditions must be identical, not substantially similar. And so we said, how can it be identical? Maybe their health insurance plan will be different. Maybe their benefits plan is different, even if the salary and the desk the person is sitting on is the same. And, and the USCIS slash INS at that time said, you know what, you're right. We should change it. We should do something. But as far as I know, there's never been a statutory change in the actual language of the black letter law. So I think that's something that you as employers need to be aware of, that there are a lot of gray areas in this area that, you know, there are some memos, there's some guidance, there's a couple different statutes that addresses the issues piecemeal, but there's nothing that completely protects or covers the employer and the employee, though all the time companies are doing this because it can really save tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, as Dana just said, plus time and effort and energy and the fear where people are employees are abroad when this all of this is going on. 
So can the new employee continue employing foreign workers in another non-immigrant status? Um, each, we've covered H's and L's. Each other, each of the other non-immigrant statuses have to be analyzed separately. Um, for example, like TNs might be able to continue uh, if the new employer meets the successor and interest requirements. I mean, otherwise then, you know, without successor and interest, then everything is treated like new employment. But it, for a TN, if we have a successor, it could potentially continue. Uh, we would have to look at whether there have been any changes in the job duties so that it wouldn't fit with the job wouldn't fit within the TN restrictions anymore. And another example is uh, E1, E2 for treaty traders and treaty investors. That is tied to the nationality of the foreign company and as well as the worker. Uh, corporate changes might change that analysis on what the nationality is of the company and thus affect the eligibility for E1, E2. There are other examples. Again, we'd have to go through each one and see, you know, at the time, get a list of what statuses exist and, and then decide what it would mean for each one. It sounds really complicated, which is why I guess you need an attorney to really analyze and piecemeal it. And we have a whole team here at the Murti Law Firm that could truly, you know, hold your hand, guide you and advise you because there's enough stresses in dealing with the company and the purchase price and looking at the nuances and the details and the negotiation the immigration part of it, you want to hopefully be able to delegate to a top-notch team that can really hold your hand and guide you through this. Well, and this affects, the liabilities affect the purchase price. Absolutely. If someone's going to be a successor in interest and potentially take on a million dollars in liability, I would think that that would affect the purchase price. Right. Or And then they may decide, you know what, forget the million dollars liability. I don't want the liability. My processing, my H-1 applications may only cost $400,000. Uh, and so that might be a less expensive route for the employment, uh, empl new employer or new entity to take over. The successor may actually prefer to do new H-1 so there's no liability right. for the right. earlier employer. Moving on to green cards. I guess the question really is, you know, if there's a perm labor certification which has been filed by the predecessor company, in the new employer situation, the green card case generally uh, can't carry forward to the new employer unless the case has reached a particular stage of the process. Really safe stage is the I-485 stage where the I-485 has remained pending for 180 plus days because then in that case, the employer could continue under the AC-21 I-485 portability provisions allowing for the I-140 to remain valid and the I-485 to be approved as long as the new job is in the same or similar job occupational classification as the job set out in the labor certification. I know that when the labor prior labor is approved, uh, the new employer can also just simply file an I-140 amended petition, an I-140 with the new entity. And sometimes we've seen where USCIS is extremely confused about this, and they actually come back and issue RFEs because they don't understand how this works. And part of the problem, again, is as we explained before, there is no statute specifically addressing the green card situation and the memos basically say an I-140 amendment can be filed by the successor in interest in the name of the new entity, but they would need to meet all of the conditions uh, to be able to show I-140 approval and eligibility. Um, and if the I-140 petition has already been approved, the priority date obviously can be retained either in the new case or potentially could continue in the old case. Again, strategizing and working with a good lawyer might give you a great deal more options than, than just trying to cut corners and do it yourself. 
Uh, Dana, in, so what are the other issues with respect to a successor and interest scenario? With the green cards. Um, the, with the green card, it, if you have a successor and interest, then they can essentially take over where the other employer left off. So once the labor certification is approved, the case could continue through the successor company. Successor company is going to have to file an I-140 petition. And if, if an I-140 had not already been filed, then they would file that essentially as normal with the labor certificate, the original labor certification attached, and, but in this case with proof that they meet the successor requirements. So they would just, again, file that within the usual process, but just with proof that they are successor. Otherwise, if the I-140 has already been filed and approved by the original sponsor, the successor and interest company would refile their own I-140 with as an amended I-140 showing that they meet the successor requirements. I think one important thing in, in this whole, uh, when they're in transition, is that if you have approved labors, even if a company qualifies as a successor, we still have that six-month deadline that labor is going to expire, so somebody better be keeping track of all that. And just for the record, it's six months or 180 days? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here, <laughs> Sheila. Okay, <laughs> I think it was 180 <laughs> it days. They, they carry, actually have they the date carry an the, expiration date. They carry the expiration date, so you don't have to worry. It's generally 180 days, and we use 180 days interchangeably with six months. But remember, right. usually 180 days is two or three or four days less, depending on how many month, days are there in a particular month. So, Brian, what happens if the Form I-140 petition is pending with or approved by USCIS and the filing company no longer exists? In this situation where the company does not exist anymore, the new company, the successor company, has to file an amended I-140 petition. And it doesn't matter whether that I-140 from the prior company was pending or had been approved. So the new company has to file the I-140 and has to demonstrate that they are a successor in interest in order to preserve that green card process and move forward. But potentially as well, I'm guessing if the I-140 is approved, the entity doesn't exist, the priority date becomes current, let's say, three years later, you could file the I-485 with the successor in interest, though there's no statute regulations or guidance. Again, it depends on the level of risk that an employer is willing to take because USCIS could potentially come back and say, hey, when did this happen? How did this happen? Where are the documents? Show me the proof. And again, to the extent that the law is silent on so many areas, it gives room for certain levels of creativity without taking any kind of risk for the employer and each entity, each organization has to weigh the pros and cons and the level of risk that they're willing to take by discussing and trying to understand the nature of the costs and the nature of the risks involved. Um, as always, it's such a pleasure to have you join us in today's teleconference series. I'm sure you can appreciate the level and depths of nuances and complexities that exist in this kind of a case. Uh, we at the Murthy Law Firm have had a great deal of experience in dealing with successor and interest. I remember just really doing research on this issue maybe 17, 18 years ago when one of my early employer companies, when I first started the firm, asked and I spent like a whole day locked up in Minneapolis just trying to research these issues and look into it. And since then, of course, there have been the statutes and the Visa Waiver Permanent Act and different issues. But a proactive approach can save you time, effort, energy, and a good and will actually help you to have a good night's sleep in the long run and save you much more money because you can determine whether you want to absorb the liabilities as the acquiring entity or whether you don't want to absorb the liabilities. 
We have an amazing team that can help you at every stage of the process with the audit work, with the successor interest, with filing the labor in I-140. And we continue to look forward to helping and guiding you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care.